Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Uh, It's Charles Marshall here, in for Neil Garfield. And it is April 1st, 2021. And I'm happy to report that all the COVID restrictions are being lifted nationwide and all of you business owners out there who uh, happen to also be in a foreclosure situation can go back to running your businesses at full steam. Uh, actually, that's uh, April Fool's show. I wish it were true. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's my version of an April Fool's show. And here I am in Southern California, San Diego, and uh, the restrictions are kind of loosened here, but they're still in place. And a lot of businesses are still greatly impacted. And even businesses that can open, like uh, restaurants and, you know, some small merchants, are still limited to 25% capacity. And there's this whole complex interlay of rules. But, of course, today we are talking about the foreclosure world. And I will be getting to the uh, foreclosure and eviction moratorium, how it has been extended to uh, June 30th. And, of course, there are a number of moving parts to that. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the foreclosure world, the eviction world, and the uh, business world and the real estate world and the world in general getting increasingly complex and convoluted. And one of the purposes of this show is to at least provide some uh, guidance, not in the way of legal advice, just kind of pointing listeners in the right direction, uh, whether they consult with an attorney or use some other resource to follow up on topics of discussion. But the main topic today, which Bill will be handling momentarily, involves uh, what I call the the kind of inevitable thing you see with institutional players. If you want to know where an institutional player is going in a specific case, or to put it another way, if you want to, let's say, make a surmise or simply follow the the trail of crumbs to figure out what position an institutional player in these foreclosure disputes will be taking, all you need to do is follow the money. Follow where there are large monies, especially at risk, uh, either a major gain or a loss either way 
to the institutional player who is in danger of losing this money, though. The irony here, of course, as Neil has explained uh, countless times, and I must say he's the best chronicler and explainer that we really have out there on these topics, but these these institutional players have been paid many times over in these cases, or they really have suffered no real paper loss, and that money hasn't come out of their account because there's so many uh, layers of complexity, what I call contrived complexity, uh, which meant that money was never going into or out of an account, uh, except sometimes coming from the borrower, in which case there might be multiple payments, sometimes coming from insurers at various times, in which case you might even have double or triple payments. But regardless, Bill's going to be talking about a case uh, today where it's on appeal before the Ninth Circuit right now. It's a California underlying case where there was a a jumbo loan, $1.3 million uh, was the loan some time ago. Uh, the loan was extended to uh, Central Pacific Mortgage, which it's kind of one of the, the lesser players in the institutional lending world in California, but still they're, they're behind a lot of loans, particularly in the mortgage meltdown time period. Before and after that, they were originating a lot of loans. So in order to prevent a judgment against them, by getting the Ninth Circuit Court to, to to reverse the lower court holding against them, they are trying to uh, argue that oh, MERS is the only beneficiary here. You know, listeners will know that typically MERS is referenced in the chain of title as a kind of nominal beneficiary, and that they're just holding the beneficial interest for the purposes of electronically transferring it in a, in a sort of way to uh, to whoever does or doesn't show up in the chain of title later. Uh, as Bill will be explaining, CPM isn't even in the chain of title here, even though they originated the loan. So interesting situation. Uh, I will ask you a couple of preparatory uh, uh, questions about this, Bill, because there were some things I, I wasn't clear on. I mean, on the one hand, this was a quiet title action at the state court level, um, and it went against CPM. That's how this got to the appellate level. Is that right? Exactly. Um, and, the, and, and the key part to this whole entire case, and I'm sorry. Because my understanding is this ended up being appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, typically this would have been appealed to a state appellate court, so I'm just trying to figure out procedurally how that happened. Oh, sure. Well, the state court judgment was granted, but um, MERS filed the federal suit on its own behalf saying that its constitutional due process rights were violated because they were not served um, on the quiet title action. So a lot of the cases... they collaterally attacked it in federal court, and it sounds like they lost at the uh, the district court level. Is that correct? Well, no. They... The, the, the district court is you know trying to sweep this under the rug, and 
uh, they don't really. It's a it's a pretty bad opinion. I mean, I don't think there's really um, uh, much in the way of Merz's argument that has any legs to to, to stand on here, um, and and for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. I, but the, the key here is that this this quiet title judgment came from a position where there was no alleged default. All right, and I think what you what you see here in Merz's response in this appeal is crystal clear what they're afraid of. Uh, because this case has exposed their Achilles heel. In fact, the Achilles heel for all of these parties who are um, foreclosing and trying to collect on these false debts, right? Uh, that Achilles heel being um, that <clears throat> the they can't use the deadbeat narrative. They can't uh, use all the foreclosure case law. So in this particular thing, they're hanging their hat on uh, – Robinson and Johnson in California, and they're trying to put this and lump this in and, and get the court to believe that this is some sort of a foreclosure action with the homeowner trying to score the proverbial free house. And they're banging on the table as hard as they can to try to uh, paint that impression and, and because that's the only way that they uh, uh, feel that they could prevail on this is to get the courts to um, sympathize with that issue. But the reality of it is uh, when homeowners seek the identity of the creditors to whom their alleged uh, payments are being sent to, the investors, who owns my loan, is the right party being paid, am I protected if I continue to make this payment uh, through the whole amortization cycle of this alleged loan, am I even safe uh, in getting a reconveyance? And we've talked a lot about that in, in, in past shows. And when when homeowners who are not in the alleged default situation, MERS and the servicers don't know what in the world and how to deal with it. So when there's litigation on this, and just like this particular case here, you know, we sent subpoenas out to everybody on the planet Earth who had their fingerprints all over this, even though when there's no default situation, MERS, of course, doesn't, you know, execute or none of the servicers or anybody executes any of the uh, documents into the public land records, right? The only time they fire up that procedure is when uh, the borrowers allegedly stop making payments. So they're sort of caught with their pants down. And that's what's really been revealed here in a lot, and we've been getting a lot of really, really good intelligence now over the last several months. And, and they're coming out of cases just like this, where the questions are being attacked from a preemptive strike before there's any alleged default. And uh, going back to the subpoenas that we've put out in this case, uh, what's really telling is that the story, when, they, when MERS responded initially in the federal action, and they're claiming, look, uh, you know, our due process rights were harmed because we, you know, we have a duty under our business model uh, to notify, uh, we're the party who notifies uh, the creditor, lender, owner of the debt and the deed of trust, the beneficial interest, once an action's filed. So therefore, by not noticing us, uh, we, we weren't able to follow through on our contractual duties. But what's laughable about that is that when MERS was given discovery, they admit several key factors that, one, they can't identify a creditor lender to whom any debt is owed. They have no knowledge of who the holder in due course is of any debt. Um, 
they don't know and cannot verify any information that's been put within their system by any party. Um, it's 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 quite laughable because then the question is posed. Well, okay, Mers, uh, if you've been harmed because you can't notify the creditor. Uh, and you're admitting that even if you were noticed, you couldn't identify that party to begin with. Who, who would you have noticed? Who, who is it that you would have uh, provided uh, or, you know, tipped off that there was a quiet title action? Well, the only party left is the servicer, right? And in the quiet title state court action, the state court reviewed that and admitted and acknowledged that a servicer is not required to be noticed on a quiet title action. So... Uh, so it's getting real interesting um, on on these admissions, and what MERS is coming in and saying now, and I and I love the jujitsu uh, language in the post of today's show, is the slicing and dicing of these arguments. They actually make an admission that I think is a real head scratcher, but I think it's worth really highlighting and underlying underlining, um, and that is they're saying that. Central Pacific Mortgage, though they were named as the lender on the deed of trust, MERS is saying they are not identified as the beneficiary. All right, so it's it's always been presumed that the lender, so to speak, on a on the deed of trust uh, is is the is also the beneficiary. That MERS is acting as um, nominee solely for the lender and lender's successor and assigns. But MERS's position is no. We're sole beneficiary for the life of this. No other party is such. And it doesn't matter if this loan or deed of trust has been assigned, transferred, sold to, to dead parties, to see sent. It doesn't matter. We are forever the beneficiary. Now, you and I could talk all day about the, the issues with that argument, and, and I can produce all kinds of admissions by MERS and other cases where they've taken the inopposite position. So uh, they've said in cases that, look, once we transfer to a non-MERS member, we're out of the picture. We have no interest anymore in that deed of trust. So they're really, really spinning themselves into a, um, into a hole here. So the other intel that we're getting, and this is from another case um, that came from a non-default sort of situation, is that we've got the largest servicer, NationStar, or I should say one of the very largest, their top witness, um, admitting to many, many key critical things that I think apply not only in situations of non-default, but now universally to anybody who's challenging or contesting um, or defending a foreclosure, or trying to get to the bottom of the million-dollar question. Who owns the debt? Who is the creditor? And as we now know, based on this testimony that we've now gotten, and with all the other information as we lay it out on the table like a, a jigsaw puzzle, that the picture is now complete. Uh, we have confirmed admissions by the servicers that there is no creditor that can be identified. They have now admitted that there is, get this, no contractual connection between any borrower and any investor when it comes to a securitized loan, quote-unquote. So what, Mer what uh, NationStar's position is, and this is universal across the board, is that the servicers are, are saying <clears throat> the only party who could possibly step into the shoes of the creditor because no creditor exists anymore, uh, is the servicer. Therefore, you owe us the money. And what we do with that money, 
is is none of your business. If we pocket it and keep it, it's none of your business. If we forward it, it's none of your business. Just pay us and shut up. That is literally their arrogant position. And and so in taking that position, um, they're stating that the only party who could even call themselves a creditor is either the trustee or the servicer, and, and they're doing this on an ongoing basis because it's an industry-approved practice, okay? It's not <laughs> that it's ever been legally valid or legally approved. It's just that it's that's what's in, in the banking industry, that's the way that they do business, all right? So they're, gonna, they're running into a lot of problems now. Um, and I think anybody who's been following Neil's blog in the last six months, I think the, I think Neil has really amped up and upped his game significantly, um, and is getting very precise in in his information. And it's also what I'm seeing in how we're prosecuting cases, is that at the end of the day, uh, based on all the admissions and the evidence that we've now gathered. Negative inferences, I believe, can now be drawn from the mere fact that they don't have the goods. And they don't have the goods by their own admission. They don't have any accounts receivable, no book records, nothing. They admit this. Um, and so we're sort of at this, um, this, I don't know what you want to call it here. Uh, uh, it's not a fork in the road. or sort of we're at a crossroads here where um, – I think, in my opinion, and you might want to uh, tell me your thoughts on this, Charles, but declaratory actions, I think, are going to be real critical moving ahead here um, in these cases because of uh, and utilizing these admissions that, one, <clears throat> they don't know where the note is. They don't have custodial history of the note, complete custodial histories of it. They don't have um, agency agreements. They don't have anything. Um, and so it's uh, – and we can prove that. We now can prove that. And, uh, and what we're seeing is the responses from, from the law firms handling this, it's getting so comical and so absurd and so you – know, it's, it's nothing short of pathetic uh, seeing how they are trying to dance around what they can't, these, these issues which they can't run from anymore. Um, show us the trust agreement for, for uh, this is another big one. Um, their testimony from the trustees and the servicers is that all authority that they're given is derived from the SEC filed PSA. And we can show and prove that there are umpteen issues with that, but number one, those aren't trust agreements. And so it goes to the heart of when subpoenaing for the actual trust agreement, and there are these trusts when they register in Delaware as a Delaware statutory trust or whatnot, behind the curtains there are no trust agreements. And when they're not produced and they refuse to produce and you compel to produce and they still aren't produced, what, the negative inference is it doesn't exist. No trust exists. There is no trust governing instrument giving authority to anybody. Um, and so one last point I want to make, and I think it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, one for California cases here, is there's a civil code, 2332, and it's cited in, a, in, a, in an old case, an old California case from 1948, Hale versus D-P-A-O-L-I, 
um, where it's quoted as against a principle, both principal and agent are deemed to have notice of whatever either has notice of, and ought in good faith and the exercise of ordinary care and diligence to communicate to the other. Now, this needs to be vetted. It's not a legal opinion by any stretch, but um, when these parties are attacked from a um, preemptive strike, especially, uh, and, and these parties are served. So, for example, in California, Central Pacific Mortgage, in this MERS case, they're under Franchise Tax Board suspension. They exist. They've never been formally dissolved. In a, Cali- in a California Franchise Tax Board suspension status, a corporation cannot defend. It cannot answer and it cannot defend, and no attorney can represent a corporation in suspension status. So these are prime uh, parties to attack in declaratory judgments. There's many targets to attack in these declaratory judgments because if they're the principal, it's the code is simply saying that a principal's agent should be deemed of, have been, of having been noticed as well. And there's um, clear paths, as I'm, as I'm starting to see, where declaratory actions are like a Texas two-step, where you go in and you you basically declare, uh, and there's many different scenarios that you can declare, but getting a specific declaratory judgment is going to set the tone and the direction for how to defend and how to prosecute moving forward. And so I'm really optimistic, and I'm feeling really uh, positive these days with with not only everything that's coming to the surface, but for the first time in 10 years, Charles, I've actually got the ears of some U.S. attorneys. I've actually got uh, some attorney generals and some, uh, uh, some parties that are high up in the intelligence community that are now starting to ask questions of what the heck is going on here, and they're really paying attention. And, and so, again, I keep up the fight, but I think um, uh, we continue to make great strides. Charles? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that uh, pursuing declaratory judgments, it's its a way of streamlining a lawsuit, reducing the cost, reducing the causes of action. Uh, it's just a more <clears throat> efficient lawsuit, and because it's ordinarily tailored, those types of actions, I think, are, definitely have the potential to get more, more traction. I am going to go over uh, in a moment the latest on the uh, national moratorium front, I will say that, uh, you know, in terms of the case you were discussing, uh, you know, from the top of the show uh, onward, uh, involving Central Pacific Mortgage, uh, I think it's important for the listeners to understand the legal procedure in this situation, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like there was a state court uh, action to quiet title of a declaratory judgment type case. Uh, Central Pacific uh, lost that action. And MERS, who was not a, a party to the case, uh, to the plaintiff's knowledge, they step in claiming they weren't served and should have been served. But rather than trying to attack the uh, judgment, 
they filed a collateral suit in federal court that is merged over the same set of uh, transactions and, and involving the same parties, their remedy was to file an appeal of the judgment. Uh, I mean, granted, they weren't named as a party, so they can claim that, well, it's not really race judicata as to them. On the other hand, they certainly could have sued in state court, and that would have been a more proper forum. This is a real property matter. The idea that they should be going into federal court to get this overturned I think is absurd. But it sounds like at the lower level of federal district court, MERS prevailed, and now it's actually it's actually the original uh, borrowers, the homeowners, who are appealing to the Ninth Circuit. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and there were um, counterclaims. Uh, once MERS sued, there were counterclaims that were brought back against a number of parties based on the intelligence and the information that we obtained in discovery. Um, and once those counterclaims were, were brought, um, the case was quickly dismissed. But the reason uh, is very clear why they brought this as a collateral attack in, in federal court. As I said uh, earlier, um, they tell the court here that this is a, a, a um, a, a, uh, this, this is going to hurt their business model, okay? And that's what they're pleading to this court, saying basically we've been exposed uh, um, on the Achilles heel of our business model, and you just you, we, you can't allow the people to come at us and uh, challenge us when they're not in default uh, because we don't know what to do, and uh, that means we would have to go back and re-record millions and millions of assignments to protect ourselves, which would cost too much money. So they're, they're uh, scared to death here that their business model has been exposed, and it certainly has, and that's, that's exactly why they're uh, doing what they're doing. Okay, that's, that's good information. Now on to the uh, national moratorium. So the Biden administration has extended the national moratorium uh, related, and it does cover most mortgages. It doesn't cover all mortgages. And I will say, yes, it's all COVID-19 related. Uh, it covers approximately 70% of mortgages nationwide. Here in California, particularly in Southern California, I mean, mortgage services are moving forward with a lot of foreclosures. Uh, and they're... Uh, they're becoming uh, quite aggressive about it. Uh, the the rules on how and whether you would qualify for the COVID-19 forbearance and be protected under the national moratorium, um, they are complicated. There is a, uh, you know, and I think uh, my intention will be to get it's posted at some point to Neil's blog, and, uh, you know, you, Bill, might be able to, to, to put a blurb about this as well. Uh, but I will direct um, listeners to consumerfinance.gov forward slash housing, consumerfinance.gov forward slash housing. So uh, it does provide, I think, the latest information it does explain how the moratorium works and who it applies to. It's complicated. You know, if you do qualify, then uh, you potentially can get a forbearance. 
you, there has to be a formal application process for that. It's yet, yet another tool that we have on our side. I will also address briefly kind of a nationwide trend uh, because with this extension of the moratorium going till now through June 30th, um, it, it impacts both the mortgage market, the housing market, real estate valuation, the rental market. There's a lot of stasis now in these markets. And because there are so many properties subject to the moratorium, there there isn't a lot of movement and and in foreclosure sales, particularly nationwide, uh, like I said, there are foreclosures opening up here in Southern California, but that's still fairly unusual. Uh, the bottom line is real estate values are typically continuing to go up. Rental uh, prices are continuing to go up. Uh, the, the foreclosure tsunami that we've been predicting for some time, it's essentially in, in, in advance while uh, this moratorium stays in place. So, uh, you know, the government is even signaling they may cover, to some extent, people's arrearages. Well, that remains to be seen at any kind of comprehensive level. In the meantime, uh, it behooves homeowners to check to see whether they qualify for the forbearance and again, consumerfinance.gov forward slash housing. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. He will be back next week. And uh, thank you as always, Bill. Thank you, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.